morning, friends. It's great to uh, have you here again with us today. Uh, if you don't recognize me because of my glasses, um, this is the only pair I had left. I stepped on my other ones. And uh, this is the only option left that I can see with. So, um, but it is me. So. so, friends, how do you measure success? What is your standard of measurement? Is it your income? Is it your uh, possessions? Is it your circle of friends? How do you measure success in your life? And maybe how do you measure your children's success? Are they successful or not? So the question is, by your measurement, have you been successful? Have you been successful in school or in relationships, in your career? When you get to the empty nest stage of life, you begin to evaluate your job as parents and think about the success of your adult children uh, who are living on their own now. Was I a successful parent? Did I do a good job? Uh, are our children walking on the path to success? Thankfully, the Bible addresses this issue, and we don't have to hold a subjective opinion of how God views success. We know how he views success. When Jesus taught his disciples how to prepare for his return, he said, success would be measured, now listen, by faithfulness. By faithfulness. Not by your level of income, not by your possessions, not by how your kids turn out, but by your faithfulness. Matthew 24. His parable of the shrewd manager illustrated the importance of this. Being faithful to responsibilities is what God is after. In his most notable parable on success, Jesus told the story, you remember, of, of three servants who were given talents or responsibilities to manage. And when the owner of the estate returned to take up what they had worked for, he evaluated the success of their stewardship. You remember the story. His primary concern was faithfulness, wasn't it? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 21, speaking about faithfulness. He said, his master said to him, that is the master who, who gave these servants things to do and money to do them with, he said, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. So God's standard or measurement of success in life, whatever that includes, parenting, school, or vocation, and ministry, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. The Apostle Paul described faithfulness or success in the same way. He said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, listen, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Not rich, not popular, not comfortable, faithful. So as we begin this 
new section in the book of Colossians. Today we're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It's a new section, but to, to make sure that all of you are up to speed on Paul's argument in the book, I want to do a, a quick, a brief recap of where we have been. First of all, Colossa was a small town uh, off the Aegean Sea's coast inland a little bit, and a man named Epaphras was their pastor. Epaphras had come to faith um, in Ephesus listening to the apostle Paul preach. He came to faith, went back to Ephesus, and began to share his faith, newfound faith, with his friends, with his neighbors, and a small group of people gathered into a church, and Epaphras became their pastor. As time progressed, uh, false teachers, false teaching, creeped into the Colossae area and into the Colossian church. And so Epaphras, being young in the faith, went to visit Paul in prison in Rome to see what he should do about this. And so what the apostle Paul did was write this letter that we're studying right now for Epaphras to take back to his church and teach them from it, to help them through this false teaching that they were struggling with. I want you to notice that as Paul, you may want to turn back to chapter 1 as we do this short recap. Paul begins his letter um, with uh, saying the importance of being filled with the knowledge of God. Do you see that? He says, we have not, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will or filled with the knowledge of God. If you're going to grow in grace, if you're going to mature as a believer, if you're going to be equipped to face the onslaughts of the enemy and have the necessary wisdom to navigate this difficult life, guess what? Paul says you must be filled with the knowledge of God. And so you'll need to have a deepening, ongoing, filling of the reservoir knowledge of God in your life. The only way to walk in a worthy manner, continue to look with me, he says, verse 10, so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How are you going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Here's how. By filling the reservoir, your personal reservoir of the knowledge of God. And the first place that Paul begins his description of the knowledge of God is by clearly speaking to the identity of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 15. You look at verse 15, he lays out who Jesus really is. This is the knowledge of God. This is the fundamental place to start. Jesus Christ. He is, Paul says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or Lord of creation, for by him all things were created. Everything that was created was created by him. And then we continue here that in the, this first step of knowing God is knowing Jesus Christ who reveals God to us. The second step is knowing Jesus Christ's gospel, why he came. And then he explains why he came here starting in verse 20 of chapter 1. He says, and through him, that is through Jesus Christ, he came to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a simple, short summary of the gospel. This is how you can be saved. Jesus came, Jesus was in, well, the second person of the Godhead was in heaven. He came into the form of human, took on our form, man, and was born Jesus to Joseph and Mary. And then he explained by his life and death what the gospel is. 
And we sit here now on this side of his life in uh, being blessed by that very thing. So the second step to understanding the knowledge of God is understanding the gospel. And if you know Jesus, you'll know his gospel. Now I want you to look at the end of verse 23. And we're just about done with a short recap. Paul got through explaining the gospel, and he says it's been proclaimed all, uh, over all the earth in all creation under heaven. Now look at the last phrase in verse 23, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is what I want to focus on today, is the ministry to which God called Paul. I want to show you the connection between success and ministry. I want you to understand the importance of grasping this fundamental reality in the Christian life. I want you to see how God judges success. You may feel that you aren't too important to the church. I'm not sure how you feel. I know some, how some of you feel, but I don't know how all of you feel about your role in this church. You may think that you're a second-class Christian here or anywhere, but I want you to pay particularly close attention today so you'll have a more clear understanding of what God desires as it relates to your relationship with Sun Valley Church, if you call this church your home church. So listen as I read our passage for today. It starts, I'm gonna start in verse 19, but the focus is 24 and 25. For in him all the fullness of God, that is in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile unto himself whether all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Now look, listen to these verses, next two verses closely. He's been proclaimed a minister, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, now, he says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, this is, there is a lot here and I, I hope to get through this in a reasonable amount of time, but it will take two sermons. And I'm not going to preach both today. I'm going to preach one next week. So you can relax. Your roast won't burn. All right? So let's look at the ministry here that Paul refers to. Of course, the ministry was a common topic to Paul uh, in all of his writings. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I thank him who, is, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The apostle Paul spoke of his service and his appointment to ministry all the time in his letters. So let's look at the source of this ministry. Where did it come from? Look, look at verses 23c again. I became a minister in verse 25, of which I became a minister. Uh, for the first is a minister of the gospel. In verse 25, it's a minister of the church. They're related, but they're different. Where did it come from? Where did he get the idea that he was in ministry? Well, let's follow Paul's argument here. And, and most of you already know because you were listening when Jeremy was reading. 
But let's follow Paul's argument. He concluded the previous section of this letter, verses 20 through 23, by describing the gospel. If you move backwards a little bit to the paragraph starting in verse 15 that I already referenced, he identifies Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. He says he's the image of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He created all things. He's God. He also created the church. We read in verse 18. He's firstborn of the church. He's firstborn of creation. He's firstborn of the church. That means he's Lord of creation. He's Lord of the church. And so Jesus is the Lord God because he came in the flesh and accomplished our salvation. So that makes him Lord of the church. He created it. And as Paul ended that section, he notes that he was appointed a minister of that church. So the source of ministry in Paul's life is God himself. Let's, let's retrace this for a second. The last thing on Paul's mind when he was a young man was to become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, at the time that he became a minister, he was doing something completely different, wasn't he? Why was he on his way to Damascus? To kill Christians, all right? That's not exactly how you minister to Christians. I know, but that's what he was doing. The scripture reading today was in fact Paul's story of his conversion, and not just his conversion, but his appointment to ministry. Uh, and it was an amazing story. In that, in that moment of time, when, when Jesus knocked him off his horse and converted his soul in a dramatic way, he was appointed by God himself to be a minister. And so from that moment on, Paul spoke of this. It was God who called him into ministry. He began this letter, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. What makes you a minister? God does, is what Paul is saying. This is, this is, he, he's affirming his apostolic authority came from God. Uh, he, he wanted to make clear that his calling and authority was something that God had assigned to him, not something that he came up with himself. It wasn't of his own opinion. He wasn't a self-appointed autocrat or a power-hungry, self-styled religious guru as we see around the planet today. He was appointed by God to serve the church. The term Paul used, minister, is an interesting word. It's important to understand. It's, it's not an exalted word. It's, it's not a term that you would use to garner respect. I'm a minister, although some people do think that. I mean, they wear pretty nice robes up here and... They, they want some respect because they're the minister, after all. That's not how Paul used the word minister. The word minister actually comes from a Greek word that means servant. I'm a servant. That's not the way you introduce yourself. Hey, by the way, I'm a servant. That's the way Paul introduced himself. This is what he thought about it. It was a, a lowly term. The, 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 word, the Greek word that Paul used was diakonos in verse 23 and in verse 25. When he, you see that word minister? It's the word diakonos. Paul's view of his ministry was that God called him to lowly service to the people of God. It was a humble place. And he didn't naturally fall into this role. It wasn't like he went to a job fair. He was, he was absconded on the road to Damascus. This, was, this assignment came from God. So Paul... Paul was grabbed by God, plucked out by God, and placed into 
humble servitude to his church. Paul got the message. If you heard when Acts 20, 26 was being, or 22 was being read, uh, he asked Jesus on the road to Damascus, what do you want me to do? Okay, you're God, I, I can tell. What do you want me to do? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Lord, what would you have me do? And this was his heart. And what did, God, what did Jesus say to him there? You will be my minister. You're being called into ministry. You're being called into service to God's people. And so the source of Paul's ministry was God. Now, how about you? It's always good to, to turn our doctrine and theology inward, isn't it? Doctrine and theology is of no value if it remains focused on others, including Paul. It's only valuable when we turn it on ourselves. And so let's do that right now. How about the source of ministry in your life, in my life? Where did it come from? I don't know about you, but I, I never had a Damascus Road experience. Uh, you may have. I didn't. I haven't met anybody that has. Um, Paul didn't naturally embrace his call into ministry. Uh, and I think Christians today are equally resistant to the call of God to minister. You remember the famous prophet Jonah? He was all excited about going to Tarsus, I mean, to Nineveh, wasn't he? Yeah, no, he wasn't. In fact, he got on a boat and went the other way. And God said, hold on, uh, you're not going the other way. And he sent a big fish and, and gave him a front row seat ride back to Nineveh. So each Christian, according to scripture, is called to serve God in some way in their local church. So did God save you? If so, he has also called you to serve. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 speak clearly to this, as do other passages. We read one earlier today, 1 Peter 4.10. And, and, and I've spoken to, to people as a pastor who struggle to serve in the church, and they have numerous reasons they don't serve in the local church. They say, well, if, if God would speak to me as clearly as he spoke to Paul or to Jonah, then I'd have no problem. Then I'd serve, right? Of course, if, if you, on your way home today, somehow your car blew up and Jesus showed up and said, hey, what are you doing? Uh, then you might respond, but you know what? Something just as powerful has already happened in your life if you're a Christian. It's called the Word of God being applied to your life. In Scripture, He tells you to serve. Do you need a Damascus Road experience? Do you need a car accident? Do you need to fall off a cliff before you get the, the message? Friends, we are called by God in Scripture to serve in the local church. It's all over the New Testament. Look up just in your lexicon, look up serve or your concordance. Look up serve and see how many times it comes up. It's everywhere in the New Testament and in the Old. In 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Paul specifically says to each Christian, you are called to serve. Use your spiritual gifts in your church. You might say, well, Pastor John, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, let's work together and figure it out. How do you do that? You start serving someplace. You realize, I'm not, I don't get a big thrill out of changing diapers in the nursery. Great, maybe that's not where you're called to serve. Try something else and keep moving around till you find some place that brings you joy. And when you find that, that's where God wants you to serve in this church at Sun Valley. So start serving. 
Let me return to Paul's life here for a second to help uh, solidify this in your mind so that you understand a little bit more about the nature of the ministry that God has called you to. In verse 25, Paul referred to his calling, look at it, verse 25, as a stewardship. Do you see that? Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship. If, you're, if you have a pen, circle the word stewardship. Minister and stewardship, they go together. Stewardship. Paul's stewardship, of course, was to make God's words fully known. He says that in the very next phrase. A stewardship given for God to make the word of God fully known. Now, uh, he was called to be a preacher. There's not a lot of Christians who are called to be preachers. Most of you are not. But guess what? All of us, every believer in the room is called to serve. That is undeniable in Scripture. No one, at least that I know of, no commentator, no Bible theologian says, no, that's not the case. All of them, it's unanimous, say that every Christian is called to serve. So if this is in fact God's command on your Christian life, the next obvious question is what? Are you serving? And Jesus, in John 14, Jesus said this, verse 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. He's commanded us to serve one another. Are we doing it? Are you too busy? Oh, you're too busy. Oh, never mind. No, that's not what Jesus said to that third servant who buried his talent. Oh, you were too busy. Never mind. I didn't realize. No. So are you serving as commanded? You know, you may not be called into vocational ministry, but, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what the New Testament talks about. It's talking about serving. So let me unpack the word stewardship for you to help you understand this. In verse 25, he said that he was just a steward of the ministry. Now, <laughs> This is important. He's just a steward. The word stewardship in the Greek language is a compound word made up of two other words. And most of you will recognize these words because we've used them here before. Oikos is the first word, and we know what that word is, right? House. You're, we talk about your oikos, your house, your circles of influence. Your oikos. The second part of that compound word is namos, where we get the word law or manager, or rule. And so when Paul used the word stewardship, he was saying, I am just called to be a house manager. Now let me ask you questions about house managers. Do they own the house they manage? No. Do they own any of the possessions in the house they manage? No. They're simply managers of a home, of a house. And this is what Paul was calling himself. I'm simply a house manager. He was not seeking, Paul was not seeking glory or power within the church. He was simply fulfilling an assignment given to him by God. The Lord of the church gave Paul the responsibility to manage his house. Kind of like Joseph managed the house of Potiphar. Paul managed the house of the church, the house of God. In verse 16 of Acts 26, Luke wrote, um, quoting Jesus, I have appointed you to be a servant, Paul, a minister, a steward. So the same one who made Paul a minister and a steward makes you a minister and a steward. At the point of conversion. This is why it is so critical that you are serving 
where God has placed you with the gifts he's given you. So are you stewarding the ministry and the gifts that God has designed for you to use? I really pray that, that no one in this room is like that third servant who buried his talent and was too busy or disinterested. The master didn't respond well to that servant, as you know. Secondly, let's look at the attitude that Paul reveals concerning ministry. His attitude towards the ministry. You know, when you're commanded to do something and it's not really your favorite thing, a lot of times you can struggle with attitude, can't you? You've all experienced this if you've ever been a teenager, right? You're asked by your mom and dad to do stuff that they ought to be doing, like clean your room, you know, stuff like that. So you understand how important attitude is, isn't it? It's an important thing. Paul wrote, look at verse 24, now I rejoice. He says, I became a minister and I rejoice. <laughs> I rejoice, look, what's the next two words? In suffering. I rejoice in suffering. Weirdo, who rejoices in suffering? Yeah. I want you to see here, though, that Paul is using the word suffering and ministry as synonyms. I've been called to the ministry, and I enjoy suffering. I enjoy the ministry, even though it's, it causes suffering. I want to divide this up for you because there's two parts to this. First, rejoicing in serving. Rejoicing in serving. Unfortunately, many Christians don't have the attitude of rejoicing in the ministry that God has assigned them. They, they serve out of obligation or, or serve begrudgingly, or they serve only, or they only show up to church when it's their turn to serve. Um, you can tell someone's motivation for serving isn't what it should be when they find a way to let you know how hard their ministry is, or how much they serve, or they start fishing for praise. You know motivations are off when you start hearing that kind of thing. Instead of showing up because of the joy it brings to the Christian when they do what God has called them to do, serve his church. So if you serve, do you serve joyfully? Are you anxious to get to that place of service wherever it is because of the joy that God floods your mind and heart with joy? Paul said he rejoiced in ministry. Secondly, I want you to see the suffering in serving. Rejoice in serving, suffering in serving. And so to be sure you understand the significance of Paul's joyful attitude, you need to know the following. He wrote this particular letter from prison. And it wasn't a white collar prison. It was a dark, damp hole in the ground in Rome. I rejoice in my sufferings, he said. You know, I, I struggle sometimes if I wake up with the sniffles. Like, oh, this weather. You know? <laughs> this letter was written from prison, which is why it's included in the list of prison epistles, along with Philippians, whose theme is what? Joy. Yeah. So it's obvious being in a prison, that Paul's joy didn't come from his circumstances, didn't it? 
You see the importance of that? <laughs> if, you follow, if you follow Paul through the New Testament, especially in Acts, you see that his joy has no connection to his circumstances. He's shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's in jail, and he's always a happy guy. Don't, don't those people make you sick? <laughs> and you have a hard time, literally, you know, because it's raining. You and me. When I mean you, I mean me, us. I think we should think about this a bit. His joy, listen, where did Paul's joy come from? His joy came from a deep-seated confidence in who was orchestrating the circumstances that he was in. That's where his joy came from. A, a deep-seated confidence in the person who was actually planning his circumstances. Paul knew that God was behind every circumstance that he was in and that this God was loving, kind, faithful, and good. So whatever Paul was going through, he knew it was going to produce in him exactly what this loving, kind, faithful, and good God had planned. He knew it was going to produce fruit, so he was joyful. If joy is absent in your life, or in your ministry, is it possible that you've forgotten that God is orchestrating the circumstances you're in? If you're lacking joy, is that potentially one of the reasons? Have you forgotten that, that God loves you, that he's kind and good, and that whatever you're in, he's put you there for your good? I think it's also helpful to consider Jesus' attitude in ministry. He said this in Hebrews, well, the author of Hebrews said this about Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What, what allowed Jesus to continue to joyfully go to the cross? Even in his sorrow, he was rejoicing. <laughs> because he knew that the faithful God had planned all these things for his good, his glory, and our joy. He did all that for the joy that was set before him. One reason Paul had an attitude of joy and commanded that we have the same is because God desires joyful followers. And I think you can understand why. Let me, let me give you a few ideas. How are we going to win the world to Christ if we're depressed, angry, and sour about our circumstances? Hey, why don't you become a Christian? My life sucks. It might work out for you, too. No. How do we expect to win our classmates to Christ if we're upset about the classroom assignments or upset about the teacher that we have? How are we going to win people to Christ if if we go through the day depressed about our job, our health, our home, our car, or the weather. Who wants to join that group? So it makes complete sense why God requires us to be joyful people. Did you know that being joyful is a command? Listen, Sun Valley Church, this is a word from God. Be happy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Friends, if Christians are known for anything, shouldn't it be that they are known for their joy? 
especially in suffering. Who else can do that? Who else but us can have joy in the midst of sorrow, joy in suffering? God has great uses for suffering, and I'm all sure you're excited to hear this. Uh, he has great uses for suffering for those who follow him. First, as we just saw, if joy remains through suffering, what an attractant to the gospel. One thing that has great impact on the unsaved people, I can vouch for this personally, is an attitude of joy through suffering. Secondly, suffering produces a closer walk with Christ. Have you figured this out yet? <clears throat> Whenever you're drifting, something happens. Whenever you're kind of on your own agenda, something happens. That gets your attention. What is that? It's many times suffering. The more Paul suffered, the more he clung to Christ. And that's a natural response of suffering if you're a believer. It, it makes you run to Jesus. Have you noticed how suffering makes you pray more? This isn't coincidental. <laughs> we have a few people in our church body who are, who are going through some deep and sorrowful suffering. And guess what? They're closer to Jesus now than they were before it began. We, we say in our small groups, we say in our, you know, conversations as Christians that we really desire to be closer to Jesus, don't we? We say that, we pray about that, we journal about it, we sing about it. So it shouldn't surprise us when God orchestrates some suffering for us to go through. That's how it happens. <laughs> That's how he draws us. Thirdly, suffering with joy brings the promise of future reward. God knows us. He knows what motivates us. If you behave, I'll give you a piece of candy. It works in first grade. It works for me. Listen to Romans 8, verses 17 and 18. And if children, we've just been promised that we're heirs of God, children of God, people of God, and now Paul says this, and if we're children, then heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, watch, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. If we suffer with him, and, and the assumption is suffer with joy, he just got through talking about joy earlier in, in Romans 8. If we suffer with him joyfully, guess what? The future is really bright for us. We will be glorified with our Savior. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And, and this isn't the only place Paul addresses this. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he, he says we can get through all this light and momentary affliction because it's nothing compared to what we have to look forward to. Right? So, friends... We have, we have these things that God has placed in our lives to accomplish his purposes in us so that we have the correct attitude 
in our ministry so that we rejoice in our, in our serving, that we are okay with suffering in our serving. Um, and now I want, I want to explain to you one more thing before we leave verse 24. Many people have been confused by the words that Paul uses here, that I may fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You ever wondered about that? What in the world could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Seems to me he suffered quite a bit. Well, it has caused much confusion, and there are some challenging things to work through in this verse. So what does Paul mean that he filled up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings? Um, let's start with what we know it doesn't mean. Is that an okay way to approach this? Well, it can't mean this. Let me give you what it can't mean. Um, it cannot mean that Jesus' sufferings weren't sufficient for our salvation, right? Can't mean that. He, he just said his work for us was sufficient back in verses 18 and 19 and 20. So it can't mean that his work for us as human wasn't sufficient. Uh, as if Paul had to to pitch in to complete the work of Christ. Well, Jesus, thanks for what you could accomplish, but I know there's more. No, it can't mean that. This is one thing the entire Bible is very clear on. The work of Christ on Calvary, according to all of Scripture, was effective, thorough, and complete. The atoning work of Jesus worked. This is why he was able to hang on the cross and the last words out of his mouth were, it is finished. Not it's almost done, good luck. No, it's finished. Done, complete. There's nothing you can add to it at all. So what does Paul mean? Well, the Roman Catholics think it means that purgatory makes sense. You know, you, you go through life, you do as much good work as you can, and when you die, you still have stuff to do, so purgatory. And then when you've accomplished enough, you filled up the enough merit, then you can transfer to heaven. Where in the Bible would they get that? Here, in this verse. They misunderstand this verse, verse 24. Paul wasn't finishing the work of Christ. It says, I'm filling up the work of Christ. What does that mean? Before I go and explain to you what it means, this particular false doctrine, not just the doctrine of purgatory, but the doctrine of good works and merit, which is common even in our world, plays right into the sinful and human desire to have some role in our salvation. I've got to have a part. I've got to have something to brag about. It was me. Why are you in heaven? Well, let me tell you why I'm here. No, so that no one will boast, is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you are saved, not of works, so that you don't boast. Right? We don't have to have skin in the game. We have to have faith in Jesus Christ, period. His work is complete. If so what did Paul mean? What could he be referring to? The answer is this, 
that Paul was receiving the persecution that was intended for Jesus. You know, Jesus is gone and people still hate him. And so what they do is they find someone who loves him and they persecute him. That's what Paul meant. I am filling up in my body what is lacking, what is still out there for the hatred towards Christ. Bring it on. That's what he said. And, and by the way, this benefits the church, he said. When you suffer, it benefits me. When Paul suffered, it benefits the Colossian church. When, when we suffer, it benefits. I can look at you and the joy you have through it, and I'm like, oh, my, thank you, Jesus. Jesus himself said this to Paul on the Damascus Road, didn't he? <laughs> when Paul was confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road, Jesus spoke to Saul and asked him, why are you persecuting me? What was Paul doing? He was killing Christians. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Paul was, I mean, Saul was persecuting Jesus. He was killing Christians, sure, but that was a way to get at Jesus. Thirdly, look at verse 25, the focus of the ministry. What does Paul say the focus of ministry should be? Look at verse 25, of which I became a minister, that I became a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What's the focus? To make the word of God fully known. That's the focus of every God-ordained ministry, God-blessed ministry. Our ministry, mine in the pulpit, yours in the nursery, yours in the youth group, or on the worship team, or in small group, or a crosswalk assistant, should be, must be, to make the word of God fully known. That is the focus of every God-ordained, God-blessed ministry, no matter what it is. Now, if it is God's will that we grow in our knowledge of God, and if we've been commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, our Lord Jesus, then our ministry focus must be making the word of God known more fully, no matter where we serve or who we are with. We are to make the word of God fully known, Sun Valley Church. That is the focus of any God-blessed ministry. So we cannot, Sun Valley Church, get sidetracked. Can we be doing other things? Sure. We could go paint houses. Great. We could go serve meals to the hungry. Fantastic. We could do all sorts of things which are not wrong. If the focus is making the word of God fully known, if the focus is to get a nice paint job to somebody, no, that's not God bless ministry. It might be great for that person, but it's not a God bless ministry unless the focus is making the word of God known. Friends, if we ever stop short of fulfilling the focus of ministry, which is the delivery of God's word, we cease being a God-blessed ministry. Who wants to waste their time doing such things? At Sun Valley Church, we preach the word, we teach the word, we sing the word, we pray the word. We don't have youth group to entertain teenagers or, or to give parents a night off. We have youth group to teach teenagers the word of God so that they'll be teenage disciples of Jesus. It's the same for every ministry. 
Small groups aren't intended to be support groups. Does support happen? Sure, and it should, but it's, the support comes from a delivery of the word of God through, into someone's life who's hurting. You say, listen to these words, suffering friend. That's the support that should take place in our small group ministries. We have something actually to support each other with. We can speak into each other's difficult circumstances because the Word of God has something to say about everything that each of us go through. Our crosswalk helpers, to be specific, serve the ministry of the Word by ensuring that everybody gets across that street safely so they can hear the Word preached. That is why they're out there. No other reason is so that you can come here safely and hear the word preached. And so when you, on the way out, you can thank them for making that happen. I appreciate you stopping that truck. Had you not done that, I wouldn't have been here listening today. Friends, success in Christian life, success in Christian ministry will be measured by your joy and faithfulness and service. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that a lot of times we get wrapped up in our own view of ministry and our, and our own concerns about our lives and the struggles we have in our lives. And we acknowledge that many times we don't see clearly. We, we lose the joy that you've commanded us to maintain. We sometimes even... Uh, um, prefer our own agenda over yours. I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would do a work in our hearts this morning, that you would encourage those in ministry who maybe are, are a bit out of joy, a bit weary of their ministry and their service to the, to the saints here at Sun Valley. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would build them up, that, we'd, that by your word, as they've heard today, would be reminding them of the fact that you are with them, that you come alongside of them. You've, you've assigned them to this ministry and you come along and empower them to this ministry, just like you did Paul and Jonah and every other minister we read of in scripture and know of in Christian history. You come alongside and make our ministry possible with joy. And so Holy Spirit, please do that for us in this church who are weary and burdened. For those who have yet to commit themselves to the ministry, I pray that they would hear the message from you this morning. Holy Spirit, lay the burden on their heart that they can't deny so that they will see the need to joyfully participate in what you are doing in our church, in Yakima, and through our church to the world. Father, raise up your people here at Sun Valley to be joyful ministers of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.